Our passage this morning is Leviticus chapter 6, verses 19 through 30. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons, who is anointed from his place, shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Also the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin must eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. And if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy, but no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to the meaning for us from these passages. Show us who you are better, show us better how we ought to live before you. I pray that Jonathan will be filled with your spirit as he comes to speak. And I pray that we will be attentive as we listen. In your name, amen. Good morning. As we get into this text, by way of introduction, I want to consider two thoughts. Number one, If you think that this text, by which I mean Leviticus broadly speaking, if you think that this is a handbook for how to do the priestly duties, then it's a pretty poorly organized handbook. One of my jobs at work in in the duties I have is actually working on a company handbook that outlines the duties of various employees and what their jobs are and what good conduct is and what bad conduct is and what kind of things can get you fired and and how that book's organized is really important and if I were a Levitical priest and I wanted to know how to do my job and I came to this particular text I would want to approach it with a pair of scissors I want to take and I want to cut the parts up and reorganize them so that it makes more sense for me so that when I know, when I go to work on a particular day, what I'm supposed to be doing on that day. Or if somebody brings a particular kind of offering, I want it all laid out for me right in one place so that I can say, okay, this is a sin offering. What happens with the sin offering? Well, you do this and you do this and I do this and then we eat it here and now I know what I'm doing with the sin offering. If I were a Levitical priest, that would be what would make most sense to me. That seems orderly. And if I were a Levitical priest and I did that, 
I would be committing the sin that is actually what the Levitical priests end up committing. I would be thinking that everything that's in this text is just about the details of how to get the job done. I would be thinking it's all about just the fleshly things. I would be thinking it's all about the visible things that are in front of me. How is it that I'm supposed to take this animal and, okay, somebody's brought this animal to me. Okay, what's task number one? What's task number two? What's task number three? But God's a God of order. So we can't say that God organized this in a disorderly fashion. What we should say is God organized it in a fashion that's not about how to get the thing done. It's about what we should learn from these various things. And when he puts these things in this particular order, we're supposed to think, okay, why does this part come here and not there? Why is it that we had a whole section where we went through all five of these major offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering? Why is it that we went through all of those and we looked at them from the perspective of the person who is giving the offering? And now we're going to come over here and we're going to look at all five of those offerings from the perspective of the priest who's officiating at the offering. And then, why does he change the order here? I don't get that. See, with the the way that the person who's offering it, you, you mentioned the peace offering after the grain offering. We're skipping the peace offering. The peace offering should be here in this text that we're looking at today. We finish the grain offering. But we skip the peace offering, we go right into the sin offering. The peace offering is kept for the end of this list. Why is that? I don't know. Stick around. You have to come back in a couple weeks to figure out the answer to that. But the fact that the order changes is significant. The fact that we go from this order to a different order in the text where we're looking at what the priests are doing, that's significant, and it's significant that we look at this not as a handbook, but what are the pictures that all of these offerings give us about who God is, who we are, what it takes to access God when there's sin that's in the way, and how is all of this pointing to the new covenant? Because all of it's pointing to the new covenant. And if you want to make it just about the old covenant, fine. Take your scissors to it, cut it up, and make yourself a handbook. And you'll be like the priests who just turn it all into fleshly things. My next one is not in contradiction to that, but it might sound like it. We had a bonfire last night, just a little fire in a fire ring. And as I'm putting the fire together, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's early on. There's the wood's kind of green from the rain, so there's lots of smoke going up. And I leaned over to put a, a log right on top of the fire, and all of a sudden I hear this. And at first I didn't know what it was, and then I ran my fingers through my hair, and I realized I'd burned my hair, and it singed my eyebrows. I have less of this eyebrow today than the other one. And I was thinking about something that Mr. Booten mentioned last week. The text emphasizes really strongly that the fire on the altar could never go out. And the fire on the altar could never go out has consequences. The consequences mean there always has to be a priest on duty. Some priest has to be there through the night. These priests had to be working in shifts to make sure that the fire on the altar never went out. 
And then there's something else that occurred in the text last week that I was thinking about more. I talked to I talked to some of the men about it afterwards. But there's the passage that talks about when the priest puts on his holy garments, he's supposed to take the ashes off the altar, put them beside the altar. And then it just keeps going. And it says, and then he's supposed to take the holy garments off and carry the ashes out of the camp to the clean place. And the more I think about it, the more I think that what's happening in that is actually there's a big gap between the first part and the last part. What I think is going on is this is saying, basically, when the priest shows up for his shift, the first thing that he does is he gets his uniform on. And then after he gets his uniform on, he takes those ashes off of the altar and puts them beside the altar. And then he does everything else that he does during his daily duties or nightly duties, depending on what he is. Because, you know, you know how you handle ashes. If you handle them too quickly, they're going to burn you. You let them cool off a little bit. So I think what's happening here is this is describing at the beginning of his shift, he takes those ashes off, they cool off. He does all of his other priestly things while he's being a priest. And then at the end of his shift, he takes off his uniform. And the last thing that he does is he picks up the ashes that he took off at the beginning that are cool now, and he takes them out and he dumps them at the clean place, wearing his street clothes. And all of this makes me think that we need to think about priesthood in a particular kind of way. It's a job. It's a profession. Do you think about priests as a profession? This is work that they have to do. This is a job. This is a career. They have shifts. They have uniforms. They have a meal allowance. Elsewhere, we'll find out that they actually have a retirement plan set up for them. All of the sorts of things that you associate with a modern profession are part of what it means to be a priest. Well, why is that important for us? We've been emphasizing over and over and over. When you look at the New Testament, it says things like, you are a royal priesthood. That's really cool. That's a nice name. It's not a name. It's your job. It's your profession. It's what you are. Do you think about yourself, if you're a Christian, do you think about yourself as a priest? And meaning that I have, a, as a priest, I have particular things that are expected of me by my employer. I have particular things that are inspect, expected of me by the nature of my job, by the nature of the calling that I have. It's not just a pretty title. It's not just a lovely thing to say about somebody because it sounds nice in a song. When Peter's using that term and he's talking about a priesthood, he would have been talking about it as somebody who recognized priests had real work to do. They had hard labor to do. They would have been taking rotations in and out of working in in the tabernacle or the temple at his time. Do you think about yourself that way? Do you think about yourself as I'm a priest, I'm a priest of the living God, and I have priestly duties that I ought to be doing? I want you in that frame of mind when we come to this particular text, because this particular text is talking about what a priest ought to be doing. And our job is to figure out how does this apply to me if I'm a Christian What are my duties that I need to be getting out of this? What are the duties that I need to have? What is my job description being outlined here? 
How does this show me how I can be a priest to the Most High God? And with that, let's go into the text. I want to take verses 19 to 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he was anointed. One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. For every grain offering of the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. We could take every tiny little phrase here and we could say, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Because it all means something. I'm going to try and walk through that way and I know I'm going to miss something. So men, during the extra teaching time, be ready. You have opportunities here. Like last week, this is again a passage that is addressed to Aaron and his sons. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons. So this is, we've been looking at things from the perspective of people who offer. And this is like a little subcategory. We've been talking about the duties of the priests. Now we're going to talk about the occasion when the priests offer a grain offering. What do you do in that case? These are the offerings which they shall offer. So this is indicating that what we're talking about here is an offering that a priest offers either for themselves or for themselves in the context as the representatives of the people. This is not talking about a case where a person brings an offering and then the priest has to administer that offering. That was dealt with last week. This is talking about a different kind of offering. This is talking about when a priest needs to make a grain offering for themselves. It also says that this is supposed to happen beginning on the day in which he is anointed. So we saw, if you remember, many months back, Exodus 29 actually walked through what would happen on the day in which the priests were anointed. It gave instructions for how you were supposed to go about clothing Aaron and his sons and washing Aaron and his sons and the sacrifices that were supposed to be brought for Aaron and his sons and the blood that there was supposed to be dipped and put on their ear and their thumb and their big toe. And all you remember all of that stuff. This is talking about, okay, beginning on that day, the priests are going to start doing something. Particular with the grain offering. We're going to get to see this again, so put a pin in this one, because this is going to be useful. We're going to see this again in Leviticus 8, when it actually happens. So the priesthood, the inauguration of the priesthood is discussed, it's explained in Exodus 29, and it's actually going to happen here in two chapters. Furthermore, I want to point out a particular phrase, or a particular word, um, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed. When he is anointed. So, actually, I think that this is important, because it's talking about 
This is an offering that Aaron will give. The word he there, I think, is referring specifically to the high priest. And I'll get to why that's significant in just a moment when we talk about some of the other details that follow. So it says, beginning on the day of the anointing, they're supposed to give an offering of fine flour. It's supposed to be one-tenth of an ephah of flour. One-tenth of an ephah is roughly five pounds of flour. So if you think about one of those small, I know in, in this church we're talking a small bag of flour, but that would be, they would take that whole five-pound bag and make something out of it. And they're supposed to mix it with oil. It doesn't say in this particular text how much oil, but in Numbers 28, it says that the amount of oil they're supposed to use is a quarter of a hen. A quarter of a hen is roughly two pints of oil. So five pounds of flour and two pints of oil. This is a pretty hefty amount of, of bread that they're supposed to make. And it does say they're supposed to bake it into bread. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer. So if you're reading this in the King James, it says uh, when it is baked, you shall bring it in, the baked pieces, or when it is bacon. Um, that word that, that the King James translates as uh, bacon there, with, that's translated here as mixed, New King James is actually a slightly better translation because it's not the same as baked. It really does mean mixed. So what's happening is you've got fine flour and you've got oil. And in this case, the preparation happens outside the tabernacle. Preparation happens outside the tabernacle and then it's brought into the tabernacle to be, to actually be used as the offering. Reading the commentaries on this, the Jewish tradition was that they would take this amount of bread and they would divide it into 12 loaves, that they would make 12 loaves out of this, or 12 pieces. Do you remember what we said earlier about the, the grain offering? What is the grain offering a picture of? Well, the grain offering is a picture of the word of God. The grain offering is a picture of the word of God, and oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So you have here the word of God, which... We know what the word of God is. That's also Christ. We have the word of God mixed with Christ, and it's supposed to be to be mixed together. This isn't one of those cases where you have just the word of God with maybe the oil sprinkled over it or just the word of God with no oil on it. This is one of those cases where they're all intermingled together. And then it gives this instruction. They're supposed to give half of it in the morning and half of it at night. Again, according to Jewish tradition, it was either one of two things. They would either offer six loaves in the morning and six loaves at night, or they would take all 12 loaves, break them in half, and offer half of the halves in the morning and half of the halves at night. Our text doesn't say one way or the other. All we know is that, that they take half of it. It's made into some pieces, plural. Half of the pieces are sacrificed in the morning. Half of the pieces are sacrificed at night. Does this remind you of anything that we just looked at last week? Well, this would have been an offering made with the burnt offering. This would have been an offering made with the burnt offering. 
And what's significant about that is the burnt offerings, the, the administration of the burnt offerings, are actually done by the sons of Aaron. If you go all the way back to Leviticus 1, where it's giving the details about the burnt offerings, it's pretty explicit about how the sons of Aaron are supposed to be the ones who are taking the animal and cutting the animal up and arranging the pieces of the animal on the altar. But here it's talking about what the high priest does. So daily, the sons of Aaron are offering the burnt offering, and daily, the high priest is offering the bread offering. Daily, the high priest is the one who's offering the bread offering. Do you see how this is a picture of Jesus Christ? Do you see how daily, he's the one who's bringing the word? Daily, he's the one who brings the Holy Spirit. And it uses this word, a sweet aroma. That this is a sweet aroma to the Lord. We've seen this phrase a couple times before. But this is a phrase that's pretty much used to describe burnt offerings. Wasn't a phrase to use to describe when the frankincense is on. But it's a phrase to use to describe the burnt offerings or a portion of an offering that's a burnt offering. Those are often called a sweet aroma to the Lord. So when you have an animal where you sacrifice the animal and you take just the fat and the inner organs of that animal and burn those, that part is called a sweet aroma to the Lord. When you take a whole burnt offering and and burn that, that's also called a sweet aroma to the Lord. Here, you're taking these loaves and you're burning them and it's called a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, that to the Lord is really important because burned bread doesn't necessarily smell sweet. This is just bread and oil. You know what it's like when you put a piece of toast in the toaster and your toaster malfunctions or you leave the bread in the oven and it just burns up. It smells like charcoal. It's not a sweet aroma. Or think about other things that are, that are called sweet aromas to the Lord. Do you think a burned up liver sound, smells like a sweet aroma? How about burned kidneys? Or, or take some of these animals where they're burning all the pieces. Some of that stuff smells nasty. But over and over, Scripture says, this is a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is a sweet aroma to the Lord. Recognize what God considers a sweet aroma to us in our flesh doesn't necessarily seem like a sweet aroma. The New Testament uses this kind of phrasing, talking about the, the work of Christ and the work of Christians in the world. Where to some, it's the aroma of life, and to others, it's the stench of death. If you're burning kidneys, if you're burning bread, it's going to smell like the stench of death in your flesh. But if you're in Christ, you can understand how this is a sweet aroma. This is something that's rising up before God as a recognition of there's this gap between us and God. But God's made this this thing, this way of of coming to him, this way of, of being sanctified before him, this way of making atonement, this way of getting forgiveness. That is all what God calls a sweet aroma. Do you think about things the way God thinks about them? Or do you just feel them in your flesh? 
it is pleasing to God. And it's used all throughout the, the law to talk about these kinds of offerings. Ezekiel verse 20, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 40 to 42, show actually how this is a picture of the new covenant. And listen carefully to what's said in this, this passage. It says, For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, shall serve me. There I will accept them. And there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma. When I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will be hallowed on you before the Gentiles, and then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you out of the land into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. Do you see Ezekiel does something very strange there? Because normally you think about the sacrifices as being the things that are described as sweet aromas. The bits of bread, the animal parts that are on the altar burning up. Those are the things that are called sweet aromas. And Ezekiel says something different. He says, and I will accept you as a sweet aroma. You're the offering. In the new covenant, you're the offering that's the sweet aroma. You're the offering that God considers acceptable. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. That's us. We were the ones who were scattered among the Gentiles. We were the ones that God gathered together to make into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And in doing so, God made us a sweet aroma. Paul also uses the term twice in the New Testament. One time in Ephesians 5 verse 2, that part of Ephesians 5 we're not as familiar with because it's not talking about husbands and wives and children and all that. It's before you get to all that. At the beginning of the chapter, when he's setting all that stuff up, he says that Jesus is the sweet-smelling aroma on our behalf. Paul also uses the phrase in Philippians 4.18, and he's talking about an offering. We don't know what particular offering, a, a, a gift, a uh, a tithe maybe of some kind. But anyway, somebody has brought Paul an offering from the Philippians and Paul calls that particular thing a sweet aroma, a sacrifice acceptable to God. So he uses this term from Old Testament sacrificial language to talk about some gift of money or stuff that a church sent to him for the work of the ministry. We don't know what it was. But that thing that they brought, Paul says, that is a sweet aroma, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Do you think about your tithe check that way? Because that's what Paul says. Your tithe check, if it's offered in the right sort of way, is a sweet aroma, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Do you think about the good works that you do in this way? Are they sweet aromas, things that are acceptable, sacrifices before God? Or like Ezekiel said, do you think about yourself this way? Does this describe you? Does this describe you as a sweet aroma, a thing that God has made acceptable 
through through the work of Jesus Christ, and then lastly here on this part, this is an exception to last week. So last week when we read all of the details about how the priests were supposed to handle the, the grain offering, he was talking about things that the priests could eat. And everything that we've looked at this week about the grain offering ends with a, for every grain offering the priest sh- of the priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. So all of this daily grain offering, this daily bread that's being taken and burned on the altar, the priests are not supposed to eat this. And that's going to be something that we find fairly consistently. When a priest, a Levitical priest, has to bring their own offering, either an offering for themselves or an offering for themselves as a representative of the people, in those cases, those offerings are always treated as whole burnt offerings, even if they fall under one of the other categories, as a sin offering or a trespass offering or a grain offering. Even if they are technically one of those, you treat them like a whole burnt offering. You don't do extra stuff with them. You don't figure out who gets to eat them or what family members get to eat them or what clean people get to eat them or take them home or eat them in the tabernacle. None of that stuff applies. When a priest brings an offering for themselves or for themselves as a representative of the people, it's wholly destroyed. It's wholly burned up. And what we see here, at least in part, is this is showing us some of the limitations of the, the Old Covenant. This is showing us the limitations of the Old Covenant that we've already covered in Hebrews. That the priests have to offer things continually because the priests can't make atonement for themselves. The priests can't make save themselves. The priests can't give themselves their own word. When the priest is making an offering for themselves, they don't get a benefit back from that. It's just wholly burned up. If you want to take a really negative reading on this, and I think it's an appropriate one, if you want to talk about the, the, the literal Levitical priesthood and what this is pointing towards, this is pointing towards what they would do with Jesus Christ. They would take Jesus Christ and they would literally sacrifice him and they would get no benefit themselves. They would not get to partake of the flesh of Jesus Christ. For him, for for them, he would be wholly burned up. There would be nothing there for them to eat. So at least in part, that's some of the picture going on here. Is when you look at what happens in the details in the New Testament, things for the priests aren't good. There are limitations to what they're there are limitations to, to what can actually be done for them in this covenant. Verses 24 and 25. Also the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is killed. The sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. So this is going to be the shortest section that I have to talk about. But there are a few things that are really important to pull out of this one. 
Um, like this is in a sense, the sin offering is, is mentioned. It's like a burnt offering. It's killed in the same place. And remember from Leviticus 4, a couple chapters ago, that there are four different kinds of sin offerings because that's going to be relevant at the very end of this passage. There's four different kinds of sin offerings and they're different sin offerings based on the status of the person who's making the offering. The first one that's discussed is if a priest sins unintentionally, what do you do? Next one is if the whole congregation sins unintentionally, what do you do? If a ruler, number three, sins unintentionally, what do you do? And then finally, if a common person sins unintentionally. So just as a refresher, keep those four classes in mind. Because the first two and the last two are going to get treated differently in this text. They actually got treated differently in Leviticus 4. And we're going to see how that carries through here in what the priests have to do. But I also want to key in on that last phrase, because this is something that wasn't mentioned earlier in Leviticus 4, but it's mentioned here. The sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. Now, be careful about the English translation you have there. The English translation is not a bad translation, but the way that we use the word most is not what is happening in the Hebrew. This makes you think that, oh, this is the most holy offering. And it's not, because you read other places where it talks about another offering being most holy. How can two things be most holy? Um, And it's just the way that our translators decided to translate things. Because in Hebrew, it doesn't have the word most. It just has the word holy twice. Really, what it says is, it is holy, holy. This offering is holy, holy. And whenever you see something else talking about the offering and it says it's most holy, don't think, oh, this is the most holy thing. Just think it's a double holy thing. This is exactly the same construction that's used when it's talking about the the building of the tabernacle and you've got the the outer courtyard and then you've got the inner chamber and then the inner, inner chamber where it talks about the most holy place. It's the same thing. It's the holy, holy place versus the holy place. And that's really important. It's really important with how we interpret this when God calls this particular offering most holy, or when he calls it double holy. It's holy, holy. Remember that when we get to the next section. Verses 26 to 29. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, everyone who touches his flesh must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. And if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. Like we learned with the grain offering last week. The priests are to eat the sin offerings. The priests who make the sacrifice, the priests who go about. This is one of the benefits of being a priest is you you might have gotten to eat a lot more meat than a regular person. One of the perks of the job, because somebody is bringing the sin offering, they don't get to eat any of it. Remember, for, for what, what would happen for them is they would bring it in and the blood would be administered different ways, but 
they don't take the the person who's bringing a sin offering takes nothing with them. They are making a real sacrifice. Contrasted with the peace offering, where you bring the peace offering in, portions of it are taken, but then you take the rest of it home with you. In this case, you bring the sin offering in, it's all taken from you, but the priests get to have portions of it. The priests get to have portions of it. And as we walk through the this from the priest's perspective, recognize that they do get benefits from their work. Perhaps the simplest, most straightforward interpretation of what's going on, the, the, the lowest level interpretation of what this means in the New Covenant, is just what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5, you know, verses 17 to 20. It's that passage where it talks about don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's saying, hey, those who labor in the word should profit from the word. So one of the most simple explanations of what's happening here is when the priest is doing something for you, when the priest is doing these things like making atonement for you and getting that forgiveness from God by doing all of these things that God commanded to do, they should get some benefit from it. And God's built it in here. That's, that's the, the lowest level, and I don't think it's wrong, but that's the lowest level here is that those who labor in the word should benefit from that. But there's more to it. There's other layers to this particular passage. Remember, these offerings are considered to be most holy. They're holy, holy. And in order to touch the flesh of this animal, much less eat of it, it says to even touch the flesh of this animal, you have to be holy. Wait a second, what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? You have to be in a state of holiness. The picture here is that you, if you are in a holy place, which would be the court of the tabernacle, and you are yourself holy, then you are permitted to take of the double holy things. If you are holy and you're in a holy place, then the holy, holy things are available to you. And, and in, in the Old Testament terminology, and this is something I saw in the commentaries where they, I think that they're confusing things, that holiness is not the same thing as cleanness. Now, in order to be holy, you have to be ritually clean. Somebody who's ritually unclean doesn't count as holy. But holiness is a level above being just clean. It means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. This is the process that the priests go through when they become anointed for their job. Is part of that is they part of just becoming anointed is being set apart. They are made holy. This is the same term that's used for when they take the the blood and they sprinkle it all around the various utensils at the inauguration of the tabernacle. That is making those things holy. It's setting them apart for this picture of heavenly use, not for common use. For pictures of heavenly use, not for common use. Remember, it's also the same thing that's happening when you've got the holy, holy place, and right next to it's the holy place. In order to get access to the holy, holy things, you've got to be holy first. That makes sense, right? And God's saying, here's this picture I'm giving you. If you want the the things that are really holy, if you want the things that I consider to be really set apart, you need to be set apart too. 
You need to be set apart in, in two senses at least. You need to be set apart in that you yourself are holy. For a priest, what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means you had to have been tapped for the job. You had to have been anointed. You had to have had the blood sprinkled on you. You had to have had been washed. You have to be wearing the, the garments that are holy garments. You can't just be wearing your regular clothes. And also, you have to partake of this in a holy place. This, this is not a meal that you could say, oh, okay, I did the sin offering. I'm going to take this one home now. You cannot take this outside the gate of the, ta- the court of the tabernacle. This has to be inside the court of the tabernacle. Do you see the pictures here that God's giving? Do you see the pictures of, of the Christian life? If you want to partake of the really good things that God has, then make sure you're holy. Make sure that you are doing holy things. Make sure that you are clothed in holy ways. Make sure that you are cleansing yourself from unrighteousness. Make sure that you are staying in holy places. And then comes this bit that's most interesting to me. Where he talks about, well, so if you get to cook meat and eat meat, you have to do something a little different than you would do with the grain offering. The grain offering, you know, if somebody brings you loaves of bread, okay, it's all done. You get to, to eat it. Nothing else is really special about that. Maybe you need a napkin. But think about mechanically what has to happen if somebody brings you a live animal and they bring it to the door of the tabernacle and you kill it in the same place that you killed a burnt offering. Now you've got to, you can't just eat raw meat, but you have to eat this meat because it says the priest shall eat it. So once it's brought, the priest has to, to eat it. Well, you've got to cook it. You've got to cook this meat. And it says that, that there's a couple things that, that you should consider. One is, well, what happens if any of that blood gets sprinkled on your clothes? And I take this to mean accidental sprinkling. Because this particular offering is not an offering where the blood is sprinkled on garments intentionally. You do intentionally take that blood and you put it on the altars and you pour it out at the base of the altars. But you don't intentionally put this blood on clothes. But good grief, anybody who's not sacrificed, I hope nobody's been sacrificing animals. Anybody who's actually ever killed an animal realizes the blood kind of gets everywhere. You have to work really, really, really hard. It's basically impossible to kill an animal, especially the way that they would have been killing these animals, without getting blood on your clothes. And then, after that's happened, you've got the meat that you've got to deal with. Well, you've got to cook that. You've got to cook it in something. I'm going to differ pretty strongly with what the commentaries say about this. I'm going to differ really strongly. Uh, Let me tell you, most every commentary out there that deals with this particular passage says something along the lines of, well, here's what's happening. The blood comes onto those clothes, and then you have to wash those clothes. The reason that you have to wash those clothes is because somehow or other, the sin on that sin offering has kind of infected it. And you've got to wash that sin away. 
And the sin has infected the meat enough that, that if it's on, uh, if you cook it in a clay pot that you can't really clean out because it's porous or something, you just have to destroy that pot. Or if you cook it in a, a metal pot like bronze, copper, you have to scour that pot in order to get it all the way clean. Because the sin is, is infected in that offering. That's what pretty much all of them say. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that th- that's right at all. And there's a couple reasons that I don't think that right, that's right. First off, is twice in this passage, the, the offering itself is called holy, holy. The offering is called holy, holy. And sin is something that is not holy by definition. Sin is something that makes something unclean. And unclean things can't be holy, much less holy, holy. So I don't think what it's talking about here is that, that the offering itself is infected by sin. The whole point of this is to deal with sin. Secondly, and, and I hope it's obvious, the priests are told to eat this food. The priests are told to actually ingest this food, to consume it. And if, if the thing is so infected that you have to wash your garments and scrub the pots, then don't eat it. If it's that bad, don't eat the food. And finally, the description of the peace offering in Leviticus 4 treats it as the, the peace offering is like halfway between a burnt offering and a sin offering. I'm sorry, the description of the sin offering is halfway between a burnt offering and a peace offering. Because the animal is killed in the place of the burnt offering, but the fat is dealt with like the fat of a peace offering, and then the priests eat the food like a regular person would eat the food of a peace offering. So there's a lot of parallels there. The main difference between the sin offering and the peace offering is who gets to eat the animal. And if this is something that brings atonement, if this is something by which God provides forgiveness, then why do we think that sin persists in the thing? So here's what I think it does mean. We can walk through each of these a little bit. First, let's deal with the clothes. So the person who's handling this, the person who's dealing with this, they have to be holy. They have to be wearing their holy garments. When we studied the sin offerings earlier, what we said was the sin offering is a picture of salvation. The trespass offering is a picture of sanctification, but the sin offering is a picture of salvation. So the blood of this sacrifice, the blood of the sin offering, the picture there is like, well, this is like the blood of Christ. And what happens, what happens to somebody when the blood of Christ gets on them? Well, symbolically, what we know that means is they, they get saved. 
somebody who has the blood of Christ on them, it's not that they become less holy. It's not that they become unclean. It's that they become clean. They become holy. They become saved. And so we're dealing with outward things here. We're dealing with outward pictures. So the blood gets on you on the outside. It gets on your clothes on the outside. What does a saved person do after they get saved? They get baptized. That's the next step. And what do you do with clothes that get the blood of Christ on them? Well, you baptize those clothes. I mean, it says you wash them, but, but you're baptizing the clothes. So the picture here is this picture of how things normally work. You become saved, and then you become baptized. This is the, the just, it's, it's all external, but that's, that's partly at least of what's going on. Another thing to remember is that ritually speaking, the priest's clothes are holy and they are not supposed to take their holy clothes and mingle with the people outside of the tabernacle. Their clothes are only supposed to be worn inside the tabernacle while they're doing tabernacle work. And also remember what it has said twice about this particular offering is this offering is most holy. Anyone who touches it has to be holy. So this particular garment, just practically speaking, you couldn't take this particular garment off that's been stained by this blood and take it home to wash it. Because if you can't just mingle with the people, lest you sanctify them outside in the camp while you're wearing the garment, then you can't take the the garment home to wash it because it's this most holy thing. Most holy things have to stay inside the tabernacle. Most holy things have to stay inside the tabernacle. So in a sense, it has to be dealt with inside the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle is where, where you deal with most holy things. And then you get the pots for cooking. And in, but in order to think about this, think about all of those things that we read about way back when we were talking about the details for the construction of the tabernacle. And it gave you instructions for how you're supposed to make the curtains, what kind of fabric you use. It gave you instructions for poles. It gave you instructions for boards. It gave you instructions for silver sockets and gold candle lamps and gold tables and gold plates. And you had bronze altars outside and you had utensils for the altars. Think about all of that list. And what's not on that list? What's not on that list are pots to cook meat in that you're supposed to eat in the holy place. All of those other things that you use for the service of the tabernacle of ministry, all of those got sprinkled with blood early on to to sanctify them. But there's nowhere in that list what you do when you need a pot to cook a goat in that somebody's brought for a sin offering. You're going to have to figure this one out on your own. And what Moses is, or what God is telling Moses is, well, Basically, this is something that you bring from home. This is something that you bring from outside the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle. So the thing, this this particular pot, this isn't something that has been sanctified. 
by the like all the rest of the things in the tabernacle. Like we, we read in our, our Hebrews passage, the blood of sprinkling hasn't happened on any of these things. So you've got options. You could cook it in a clay pot or you could cook it in a bronze pot. So what do you do with these bronze pots and these clay pots? What does it mean? I was kind of joking on Tuesday morning about this. And so if you've already heard the joke, don't snicker at me again. But I, I still think it applies. That I think, practically speaking, if, if Mrs. Priest hears her husband getting ready for work that day and hears him rummaging in the cupboards, she's going to tell him, don't take my crock pot because it's not coming home. It's getting broken if it gets used. You can't take that, that thing back out of the tabernacle once it's been used for this holy purpose. Practically speaking, my guess would be that, that either you just say, hey, let's get some bronze pots and use some bronze pots. Or maybe bronze is too expensive and we just have to use clay and break it every time that we use it. And, and hopefully clay is cheap enough. But even if that's the case, even if they even if they use bronze all the time, the text is really clear here. There's this picture of if you do it this way, if you if you cook this meat in a clay pot, you destroy the clay pot. If you cook it in a bronze pot, you scour that pot. I've been saying clay pot, but the text uses the term earthen vessel. And I think it's really useful to consider all of the other cases where earthen vessel is used. And earthen vessel is actually a fairly common metaphor in scripture. And it's used metaphorically fairly common. Psalm 2, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 19, Lamentations 4, Revelation 2. All of these things talk about clay pots or earthen vessels as being people that are set up for destruction. They're talking about that, you know, you know, Psalm 2, that he will dash them in pieces with a rod of iron. This is the, the picture that's fairly consistent throughout Scripture when it talks about clay pots, clay vessels, earthen vessels, is it's talking about human flesh. Fairly significantly, it's talking about human flesh. You know this. And I'm, I'm going to Romans 9, verse 19, but you can look at the parallel passages for this in Isaiah and Jeremiah. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So what Paul's doing there is he's using this metaphor of imagine a potter who's making a pot knowing it's going to be broken. Well, if you were a potter in this particular time, if you were a potter back at the time of the Exodus in the wilderness wandering, 
then you might just say, hey, you know what? One of the things I'm going to make are pots that they're going to use in the tabernacle for the service of meeting for cooking this flesh. And I know they're going to be single use only. And then they're destroyed. These are the paper plates of the day. Because it's this, you know, however much artistry I put into this, it gets used once and then broken up. And Paul's appealing to that metaphor of, hey, a potter can do that. A potter can make a vessel for dishonor. And there's nothing wrong with that if a potter decides to do that. If a potter decides, like God, to make something and set it up for a day of destruction so that it has a use and then it's destroyed, you can't say, you as a pot, you can't say, why did you do this? And if he makes some for honor, you can't say, why does he do this? God forms. God has a right to do as he sees fit with humans. And the contrast here, the tension is of vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. It's not a perfect overlay on this passage, but it's close. Or take Second Corinthians verse I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter four, start in verse seven. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels with the excellence of the power that the excellence of the power may be God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay, this is an incredibly dense passage. This is one of those passages where if we were preaching on it, it's probably about three sermons. I'm not going to get all of it. But look at a few things that are happening here where it talks about we have treasures in earthen vessels. Well, I mean, how is that any different than what we're talking about here where you have a holy, holy offering that is for people who are holy, wearing holy clothes and a holy place to eat? That's a treasure in an earthen vessel. And what the, the author of, or what Paul is dealing with here in Second Corinthians is he's dealing with the tension of being a human being living in dying flesh and yet being set apart for heavenly eternal things with the weight of glory. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to bear the weight of glory in flesh. He's recognizing there's a tension going on. And I know I'm painting with a really broad brush. There's tiny little details here. We're not getting all of those. But then he says these things like, 
there, that there's the, the power of God is working in human flesh. There's this tension between death and life. There's mortal flesh, but also Jesus was raised up in the flesh, and so shall we be. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed through light affliction. Does that sound like what happens when you scour a pot? You lightly afflict the pot, scrubbing it in order to renew it, in order to refresh it. There's a tension between death and life, between the mortal and the resurrected, between the temporary and the eternal. And it all starts with the treasures in earthen vessels. The last New Testament passage I want to go to, 2 Timothy 2.19. This is part of what Noel read for us earlier today. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, like the house of God, like a tabernacle or the temple, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Again, you have vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So we have here this tension between vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. Vessels that you make knowing you're going to use it once and you're going to destroy it, and then vessels that you take really good care of and you're going to keep them around. You're going to scrub them thoroughly so that you can use them again. They are supposed to be cleansed. The word cleansed here, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, the latter meaning iniquity. If anyone cleans himself from iniquity, that word cleansed is a really strong word for cleanse. It means like purged. Um, Kind of like the detail with which you have to wash this bronze pot. Or take that word sanctify. That if you are a vessel for honor, cleansed from iniquity, you will be sanctified and made useful for the master. Now, our English translators use the word sanctify because we don't have a verb form of holy. But in Greek, the word there is just the verb form of holy. So when you see the word sanctified there, you could just translate it as holified, has been holified, because that's what it literally is in the Greek. Useful for good work. Remember what I said about thinking about priesthood being a job? You need to be set up to do good work. You're a pot of some kind that needs to be made and useful for good work. So what does all this mean about the pots? You go to these, these New Testament pictures that talk about vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor, treasures in earthen vessels. How, how do we bring all that back here to Leviticus? What are the pictures here in Leviticus? I think there's a couple things that are, are possibilities and, and that they could actually all apply. One of them is just, hey, one of these pots is a pot that's set up for destruction. 
one of these pots is in the holy place. It's used for holy things. And then when the use is done, it gets destroyed. And from that, I want to say, make your calling and election sure. Because you don't want to be that pot. If these pots are talking about flesh, if they're talking about being a human, you don't want to be the pot that's brought into the holy place, used for a holy thing, and then destroyed. Because there are people who are going to be like that. There are people that the New Testament tells us they're going to go to heaven and God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to say, but, but, but we cooked the sin offering. No, they, they say, we did wonders in your name. We did signs in your name. And God says, depart from me. I never knew you. If there's not faith in you, then all those good works are not good works. They're useless. You were, you were something that God used for a time and a moment and then was destroyed. This should be a warning to us here because we're people in church. We're people who are gathering together in the equivalent of the holy place. We're gathering together to do holy things together. We're either actually wearing the holy clothes or we're pretending to wear the holy clothes. Do you want to be this pot? that's set up for destruction. Have faith. Don't be just earth. Alternatively, or likewise, even those who have faith, even those who aren't set up for destruction, should expect a period of scouring. They should expect that there's moments when cleansing has to happen. If you're that bronze pot... You don't have to worry about being destroyed. That's not what you've been set up for. But expect that there's moments when you need to be scrubbed. Expect that there's moments in which you need to be cleansed. But I actually think that there's another meaning for this one. I think that this is picturing the incarnation of Christ. Because the sin offering itself is a picture of Christ. And the earthen pot is like putting Christ in human flesh. And you know what God decided would happen with that human flesh? It was set up for destruction. It was set up to be broken for our sins. Christ came and he took on human flesh. He humbled himself and he took on flesh. He became made like us in order to be destroyed. So there's that picture in the one pot. But then you look at the other pot. You know what washing is a picture of? You know what baptism is a picture of? Baptism is a picture of resurrection. Washing clothes, it's a picture of resurrection. Wash The other pot that gets washed is a picture of a pot that gets resurrected. It's got its use, but then you can clean it and you can use it again. It has new life in it. It's not a single use only. It's not like human flesh that gets destroyed. And that's also Christ for us. We don't serve a Christ who came as a sacrifice who was just destroyed. We serve a Christ who came as a sacrifice and then rose again.
he is a vessel for honor, even though for a time he wore the vessel of dishonor. Verse 30. I kept this one off all by itself because there's a lot happening here. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. All right, so what's going on here? What's, why are we setting this one aside? What's, what's happening in this particular verse? And remember what we said just the previous section where we talked about the offerings that a priest makes of the grain offering for himself. If the priest makes an offering from the grain offering for himself, it gets wholly burned up. Nobody eats of that grain offering. Well, you come here to the sin offering, and it's saying, no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. Well, that description there, that describes two of the four types of sin offerings. Remember, we had our four types of sin offerings, the offering that the priest makes, the offering the priest makes for all the people, the offering that the ruler of the people makes, and then the offering that the common person makes. In those first two offerings, what happens is the animal is killed in the place like the burnt offering is. The blood is taken, and the blood is actually taken, some of the blood is poured out at the the the, the base of the altar of burnt offering, but some of the blood is taken inside the tabernacle and it is put on the altar in front of the veil. This is the little altar. This is the altar of incense. Some of that blood is taken in there to make atonement. And those first two offerings are the cases where that happens. When the priest has to make atonement for his own sin, that's how it happens. And when the priest makes atonement for all the people, that's how it happens. The, the blood has to go inside the holy place. And in those cases, the animal is not to be eaten. Just like with the grain offering, you, the priest can't make atonement for his own sins. The priest can't eat the atonement of his own sins. It says the animal has to be wholly burned. If you go back to Leviticus 4, you see that that animal is taken outside the camp and it's burned in the place, the clean place where the ashes are. So it's a burnt offering, but it's a burnt offering that happens outside the camp. It's a really, really tough idea. There's a dense passage. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a passage in the New Testament that explained to us everything that was going on here? Because this is really hard. And there actually is a passage in the New Testament that talks about exactly this situation and exactly this verse. Go to Hebrews 13. If you've got your Bible open, if you're following along, it's worth reading this one. Start in verse 9. Do not be carried away about various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, have not profited those who have been occupied by them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. 
Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Isn't it really nice when you have a hard Old Testament passage and then somebody in the New Testament says, you know what it all means. Here you go. So let's walk through this. Because what he says in the New Testament here is so much better than anything I can come up with. This is a hard one for me. But he's talking about this situation. You can see where he's talking about it. Um, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, that's these two kinds of sin offerings. Those are the ones whose blood is brought into the sanctuary. Those bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. He says, this is Jesus. In case there was any doubt, this is Jesus. This is what happened with Jesus, who was killed outside the gate. He's saying all of that stuff that happens at those, those ending chapters of the Gospels, where the, the place of execution happens to be outside the gate, it's not an accident. It's all prefigured here. God had it all set up from the time that he was giving out these laws before he gave out these laws. But but we know from the time that he's giving out these laws, he's saying, here's what's happening. You're going to be taking this animal outside the camp every time you do this, every time you have one of these sin offerings. And they would have had these sin offerings pretty regularly. Even if a priest never voluntarily made one of these sin offerings, you can see there's times when they're told, you do a sin offering here. You do a sin offering here. They had to do sin offerings at the inauguration of the priests. They had to do sin offerings as part of many of the, the regular yearly festivals. They would have been regularly enacting this thing over and over and over, where they sacrifice the animal like it's a burnt offering, take the blood inside to make atonement, and then take the body of the animal outside to burn it up. And our author of Hebrews is saying that was all about Jesus. That entire picture, all about Jesus. This is what was happening with Jesus. And furthermore, because that happened with Jesus, there's things that we can learn from that. He gives us the applications right here. I don't even have to come up with the applications for this one. They're all right there in the text. What does he say? He says, take care to fall into those snares. He's warning them, look out for bad doctrine. The particular bad doctrine that he would have been writing to the the Hebrews about would have been the Judaizers, people who cared about particular foods that profited them nothing. There are many, many, many priests who ate the sin offerings and it profited them nothing. There are many priests who ate their portion of the grain offerings. It profited them nothing because they had no faith. He says, Don't be carried away by the doctrines of those people. They're no good for you. They're not going to profit you anything. He says, go out. Think about what that means. This is, he's writing to the Hebrews and he's telling them, follow Jesus outside the camp. Bear his reproach. This means more than just live the Christian life. 
to this particular audience. This means more than just, I'll be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. For this particular group of people, he's saying, be willing to give up country and culture. Be willing to follow Jesus outside the camp, away from all of those things that were so familiar to you, that you have generations of background behind. Be willing to give all that up for Christ. Follow him outside. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant. The old covenant priests could not partake of the inner altar. They couldn't partake of sacrifices of the inner altar. There was nothing there for them to eat. They weren't allowed to eat anything for which blood was taken on that altar. But what does he say here in Hebrews 13? Jesus sanctifies us. He gives us access to that altar. He said, we have an altar here. We have an altar from those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. That's just as good as saying the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And what is that altar? That altar is the place of continual sacrifice. What particular sacrifices? It's not animals anymore. We've been talking about lots, lots and lots about animals and what you do with livers and kidneys and fat and skin and flesh. We've been talking about bread. But we have a continual altar. And he goes through and he lists. Here's what the sacrifices are that you give. Here are the new covenant sacrifices that you have where you have access to an altar that the Old Testament high priests and priests did not have the same kind of access that you have now that Jesus has come and gone. You have the opportunity to give a sacrifice of praise. You have the opportunity to give the sacrifice of the fruit of your lips. There's five of them here in case you're taking notes. Praise, the fruit of your lips. Giving thanks. And also, don't forget, doing good and sharing. Nice, simple, tidy list. How are you doing on these? How are you as a priest doing at your job? Like I said at the beginning, you have a job. If you are a Christian, then you are a priest and you have access to this particular altar that the old covenant priests could not eat from. It's made a a point that in the verse, it shall be burned with fire. They have no access to that thing. But now we have access to that altar in ways that they didn't. How are you doing with thankfulness? How are you doing with the fruit of your lips? How's your doing good going? How are you doing with sharing? That's it's one we like to talk about with kids, but how are you doing as adults with sharing? Because when he wants to talk about the list of sacrifices, he gives... Here's a small list. Here are the sacrifices that are good and acceptable to God for you in the new covenant. Sacrifices that the, if you want to go back to the old covenant, that's just not available. Not in that way. <coughs> applications. I have five applications. Number one. Remember, 
you are created for good works. Being a priest means that you have work to do. You have a job, you have a profession, you have a job description. You have an altar at which you should be doing your work. And that's what you were made for. If you were made a priest, if you were anointed as a priest, if you were washed by the blood of Jesus, you were made for doing those good works. Number two, do not make the mistake in thinking that good works save you. The good works of the priests didn't save them. The priests would have to offer offerings for their own sin that they couldn't benefit from. They couldn't make atonement for their own sins. <clears throat> Number three. Are you a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? Are you a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? If you're old enough, you will remember the, the What Would Jesus Do campaign. And it was silly, and it was goofy, and it was WWJD on t-shirts and armbands, and it was a way to sell merchandise. But don't be mistaken. There are actually people out there who, when they were confronted with this silly money-making, money-making scam, thought, hey, in this situation, what would Jesus do? And it constrained them to try and do the right thing. I don't want to make a mantra of it, but I think it could be useful to think in this particular time, in this particular moment, at this particular thing, am I being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? When I go to this website, am I being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? When I talk to my sister that way, am I being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? When I forget to do this thing that I promised to do, am I being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? Are you being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? Are you that acceptable sacrifice towards him? And remember that phrase to the Lord. This is still the same application. Remember that phrase to the Lord. You're not trying to be a sweet-smelling aroma to people. If you are, that's a happy side benefit, but you shouldn't necessarily expect it because what is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord could be the stench of death to those who are dying. So do the things that God wants to do. Be the sweet-smelling aroma to God. Next, next one, number four. You should ask yourself, which kind of vessel are you? Are you a vessel created for honor, or are you a vessel created for dishonor? Are you a vessel that God has created for a single use, the main point of which is to destroy it at the end, or are you a vessel that God has created for many uses over and over? Make your calling and election sure by asking what kind of vessel are you? Are you bronze pots or clay pots? And lastly, from verse 30, you are a priesthood of the new covenant. You Christians have access to the altar inside the tabernacle in ways that the, these priests in the old covenant, Aaron and his sons, 
didn't have access. This is what Hebrews tells us. They didn't have rights to that altar that we have. How are you taking advantage of that access? How are you taking advantage of the access that you have to that particular altar as priests of the new covenant? Do you use your access for praise, for giving thanks, for doing good, for sharing with the fruit of your lips? We have the opportunities to access this altar right now. I mean, at this moment, we're going to sing a song in a moment. When you sing that song, are you going to sing that song in faith? Recognizing that what you're doing is you're actually ministering at that altar before God, partaking of that altar in ways the Levitical priests couldn't partake of. We're going to eat a meal in a moment. It's going to be a better meal than any of us eat at home. There's going to be a wider variety of food and more of it than any of us eat at any other time during the week, almost every given week. It's going to be a rare week where something is going to outpace this particular meal. Do you use that opportunity to give thanks? Do you use that opportunity to do good? Do you use that opportunity for sharing? The answer, I'm not, I'm not leaning into the negative on this. If you're doing it in faith, then the excess of food that we bring to this is a case where you could say, hey, I'm doing what this verse said. I'm sharing. I'm sharing from the abundance that God has given me. And in just a minute here, we're going to pray. which is making use of this altar. Do you take advantage of that when you have these opportunities to pray, to give thanks, to praise, to use the fruit of your lips to lift up God? Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to this passage. We thank you for the pictures you gave us in the Old Covenant and for the explanations in the New and and pray that you would cause us to be changed be made more into the image of Jesus through all this. In his name we pray. Amen.